Hi there, this is the Guitar Speak podcast, episode number five. My name's Matt Wakeling, thank you for joining me. Now in today's episode, we interview Brett Kingman, a real mainstay of the Australian guitar scene. And uh, more recently, he's, he's built an amazing career as a gear reviewer on YouTube, where literally thousands of people every single day are checking out his videos. It's, it's quite amazing, so that interview is coming up very soon. First, I've got a little bit of news. Our home for our podcasts now um, is guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com. Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N, guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com. You can find all our episodes there, all our previous episodes and ones to come. Of course, we're still on iTunes. We're still on Stitcher. We're still on the Facebook. We're still on the Instagram. So you can find us in all the, in all the regular kind of places. Speaking of Instagram, um, I met Mick Marcelino. Shout out to Mick Marcelino from the Amps and Axes podcast. Mick said hello to me via Instagram, we, uh, which I really appreciate. I've enjoyed that podcast for ages. He co-hosts Amps and Axes with Jeff Boba over in Maryland in the USA. It's a really great podcast. And um, uh, in, our, in our online conversation, Mick ended up giving me a bit of technical help when I quite needed it, so um, I appreciate that. Thanks, Mick. Appreciate it, mate, and love your show. Now, we've launched our jam with our backing track, Get On Our Podcast campaign. Uh, the track you're hearing now is available for free download, and uh, we want you to solo over it and send it to us, and, and we'd love to play it on the show. Um, there's details for that in on our Libsyn page, guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com, or just probably go to Facebook and, and follow the links there if that's the easiest way to do that. But we would love to hear you playing and see what you put over this track. Now, onto our interview with Brett Kinman. For the best part of the last 30 years, Brett Kinman has been the guitar mainstay in James Rain's solo band. Now, James Rain, of course, was the uh, the frontman of Australian Crawl, had a great career with them, and has had an incredibly uh, long and, and prosperous career as a solo artist since the mid-80s. And without a doubt, James would be one of the uh, most iconic uh, voices and songwriters uh, in Australian rock history. Brett tells us about that gig and many of the other big names in Australia who he has worked with. Brett also talked to us about his YouTube channel where he reviews guitar gear. Now, to say this channel has taken off is would be a gross understatement. We're talking over 20 million views in eight years checking out his stuff. And gear manufacturers, some really very big names, are throwing stuff at Brett um, for him to review on that channel. So we'll find out how we put that together too. Anyway, time for our interview. Brett Kimmon, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Hey, um, you've just come off tour uh, with James Rain. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. Uh, we've been on a number of tours for the last, gosh, nearly three years. Uh, we've been supporting Chris Isaac. That was the last tour that we just finished. And before that, we were on a um, sort of a greatest hits run. Mm-hmm. And we did an Australian Crawl Greatest Hits run. James Rain plays Australian Crawl. And before that, we were out on the road with Rod Stewart. Uh, yeah. And before that, we've been on an Apia tour. So it's been a never-ending um, tour in terms of being at the airport every 
pretty much every Thursday or Friday morning for the last two or three years, and uh, I'm kind of glad that it is over for the next few months at least. Yeah, sure. Not because I don't like playing with James, but because I'm happy to be here on weekends with my wife and daughter who are getting a little shirty and understandably. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good to hear. So um, so you're doing some supports and headlines and festivals and things, and by the sounds of things. Yeah, lots of headlines and uh, uh, support to Rod Stewart and sort of a co-headline with Chris over the last three or four weeks. So it's been interesting playing humongous venues and then some modest pubs as well, which I prefer actually because people are right in your face. Yeah, cool. I might just back up. What what got you started playing guitar in the first place, Brett? There's an interesting question. Um, I think it was actually walking into an older brother's, into a friend's older brother's bedroom in 1971 when I was probably not much older than eight. Well, I wouldn't have been older than eight in 1971. Uh, and hearing Slade Alive, which was a live album that Slade the glam band from the early 70s put out very heavy album and the power that was coming through those speakers just transformed me into something like an exocet missile so i thought that's it i'm going to be a guitar player from that moment on okay awesome i was programmed um to, to be a guitar player and so I, I ran around school pretending I could be a guitar player until I actually got an acoustic guitar <laughs> which was a $20 Suzuki and then I was obsessed with learning how to play the thing and, and um, I had some formal lessons for about a year and a half when I was nine, ten years old from a elderly lady uh, who unfortunately passed away after that period of time So, I, uh, but I'd elevated quite quickly through classes and um, even at that young age. So I just continued on my own journey after that and taught myself and spent maybe six hours every day until I was 17 or thereabouts, at least six hours every day practicing. Wow. And who were you listening to around then? So after Slade, what what was the other thing? We're talking about 72, 73 onwards through to 1982. So it was the... current releases at that time and pretty much every classic rock album between 72 and 1980 is still acknowledged as, as the best period of you know or the golden age of classic rock so that's what i grew up on and so it was initially it was david bowie and it was slade and it was t-rex the kind of the english guitar driven pop glam stuff i suppose and then it gravitated to um or graduated rather to Zeppelin, I remember when John Bonham died, I wore a black armband to school. (laughs) Sabbath, uh, all of the, you know, yes, um, who were challenging, still are, in terms of technical uh, prowess, you know, from Steve Howe and trying to learn his stuff. And I still listen to those bands. Um, So that's who it was. And then 77 rolled in and I was a skateboarder and... Devo and the Sex Pistols and those sorts of bands were in vogue with that community. Uh, so I went off on a sort of a punk tangent for a little bit, but it was not challenging enough in terms of I could I could play that stuff easily. Mm-hmm. So I then went back into sort of tougher stuff to play. Frank Zappa, Van Halen appeared, Metallica appeared early on in the 80s. Um, yeah. yeah, all the usual suspects. Hendrix and Clapton never got a look in and rarely do 
today. I have hardly any of the... I don't have any Clapton records on any medium. I think I've got his Robert Johnson homage somewhere. Uh, and Hendrix, I'm only kind of getting my... dipping my toes into now. Okay. So um, I, I've read you were doing gigs when you were 12. What, what sort of gigs does a 12-year-old pull in Victoria? Well, 12-year-old doesn't really pull many gigs at all. <laughs> he was... We're talking about Victoria in the 1970s. No internet, no mobile phones, a couple of television stations. I was playing with the local sort of square dance band that were had a family at my school and they were called the Chubbies. And so <laughs> I was invited to come and play along with the Chubbies. Nice. Uh, and I'd sent a cheerio to my still friend Dick Custerson, who was the drummer at the time. And, uh, yeah, and then after that it was I was involved in every school band that I could talk my way into. Most of them were um, hosted by kids that were considerably older than me, and so we used to jam Zeppelin and Sabbath day in and day out. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And um, Play parties and stuff. Yeah, right. So when did you move into professional playing? Uh, shivers me timbers I think that would have been if we're talking sort of national level professional playing I was always paid to play guitar at churches and stuff like that I was I was I'm now a very much lapsed Catholic but in the early 70s we, I didn't have much of a choice so I was playing weddings and funerals and they used to pay okay uh, funnily enough and then um, but on a rock and roll level I had a little band here in Melbourne called I was part of a little band called The Adventure who were the first sort of indie band to be appear on Countdown without a record deal and then after that I was recruited into the Uncanny X-Men when Ronnie was uh, had domestic restrictions put on him he wasn't allowed to tour for a couple of years so I was brought in at a pretty young age and to finish off the album and then go on tour with them Cool. So this is like early '80s, I guess, when they were, when they were. That hitting. was about '85, '86. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And I stayed with them for a, nearly a year, uh, but I had to leave them in the lurch, which I didn't want to do because, but I had to because I'd met James Rayner at a nightclub, and he'd just come back from LA, having finished his first solo album sessions. Mm-hmm. And broken up Australian and split up Australian Crawl not long before that, and said, "I hear you play pretty good guitar. Do you want to join my band?" So, of course, I said yes. And the, the next morning, I was part of his band and had to give the news to the X Men, who were not very happy. So, <laughs> understandably, and sure. but fortunately, my brother Scott stepped in. Uh, he was very young at the time, but he he did it, and um, the tour continued. Everybody was reasonably happy. Cool. <laughs> awesome so early james rain i'm thinking tracks like um hammerhead i used to love that i was yeah i was probably just i'm probably i was born in 71 so by the time hammerhead came out i was sort of getting into playing and and, and a little so that was that was a fun track yep hammerhead fall of rome rip it up uh that first album had a lot of great songs on it yeah and we're toying with we're actually toying with the idea of touring it because it's, it'll be its 30th anniversary, believe it or not, next year. Wow, awesome! That's how long I've been involved with with James and his family. Who I'm now married to his sister Elizabeth. Ah, okay. 
And I'm talking to you from the kitchen in which the Rand family grew up in. <laughs> we ended up buying the family home. There you go. There you go. Yes. So the Kidmans and the Rains are now insconsibly, uh, in, no, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, inter- intertwined. Yeah. So you've Fine. got to play for him now. Well, uh, I don't have to, and <laughs> I've refused the current tour that he's about to, or, or politely declined, I should say, the current sure. tour that he's about to embark on with Mark Seymour. Oh, they're okay. They're yep, going out that. to do a, a national run together in an acoustic configuration, and um, Josh Owen, who is now playing the other guitar, we both share lead and rhythm duties in the band, uh, is a Melbourne-based player, phenomenally talented, very classy and a lovely bloke. He will be going out to do that run with James, so that will be something special for people who go to those gigs because he will bring an, an entirely new palette of... Um, approach to it and it'll be great and i will rejoin them when the summer festivals start in late october okay cool so just backing up then after you joined james's band um you still seem to be pulling a lot of sideband sort of gigs you you became quite quite well known as a a sideman to choose for touring and records yeah I i became a bit of a hired gun which was nice i ended up in uh daryl braithwaite's touring uh act for a while because um, they had just released The Edge and that, it was recorded by all of the same personnel pretty much that okay. James's early work uh, and written by Simon Hussey who co-wrote a, co-wrote a lot of those tunes um, and James's first album. Anyway, so I ended up in Daryl's band. Then I ended up in Vicar and Linda's band. Uh, I was in Deborah Burns' band for a while. I was in... Um, I was a hired gun for a fellow here... A producer here called Mark Forrester, so I played a lot on um, on uh, Peter Andre stuff and Shantuzzi stuff. Yeah. And, uh, That's another rain, isn't it? Didn't David Rain play David the Shantuzzi? for a, yep. for a couple of years. Yep, yep, that's right. There you go. Uh, and then I was in, I did Hair, the musical, for eight months or something, as a you know just a guitar player in the pit. Okay. And did then you... I, uh, sorry. Oh, are you are you a good reader? Is that how you got? Reader, which was unfortunate because I had to learn 43 pieces of music inside <laughs> two weeks. Uh, I don't know why I said yes to that gig. Yeah. I think just, nothing was happening for a couple of months, so I just said, okay. Sure. So that was very challenging, uh, but I did learn it and um, to their satisfaction, apparently, and we had a lot of fun until I, I got sick of doing eight shows a week and had to pull out for um, boredom and health reasons it was driving me completely mental so I stopped that and then I'd, I was in a band called Bigger Than Jesus in Melbourne for a while which was fronted by uh, Steve Lucas from X and it was very heavy thrash band a mm-hmm. lot of fun um, but we were insane party animals and it was getting to be uh, dangerous so <laughs> so I left that and um, ended up back on the road with James after he came back from the Rio tour, the first one. Brad Robinson talked me back into the band. Great. And uh, I haven't really left, haven't really been off since, but I still do a lot of uh, corporate work with people like Joe Camilleri and Ross Wilson and um, a lot of the heritage acts. So I know all of those guys pretty well and um, I've had you know, a lot of fun with them on boats, cruise ships and corporate tours and the ABA tour and those sorts of things. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, these guys could hire anyone. What what, 
What do you think it takes to be a really good sideman and just to keep working as you have? Well, the first thing that I know that I look for and, the band, and James looks for, because we're really the only constant members in his band, apart from Johnny Watson, the drummer, is personality. If you can't get on with somebody or there's something that irks you about them, regardless of their um, talent, you just you'd be you're a fool if you if you go any further um, in terms of saying yeah come on tour because you'll drive each other mental and that has happened in the past where you know you just don't even want to get in the same car as a person let alone sit next to them on a plane or something like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, not too often. So you've got to be very careful about uh, amicability. And I think that I try to be tolerable to most people and that's what's got me through and after that it's it's your ability to cut the gig of course so uh yeah first and foremost is your ability to be social and um and then uh, you've got to be able to cut it of course if you can't cut it well then you know you're not going to get the job either so i've i've been able to adapt myself to all of the styles so far required by all of the above aforementioned, mm-hmm. which hasn't been hard because they're all pretty classic rock and, and uh, or pop. And, you know, I grew up on the Stones and Keith Richards and Nile Rogers later on after all those other acts that I, we spoke about later. Yeah. So my, And when I actually study a style, let's say funk, Nile Rogers, I'll, I will absolutely throw myself into that, into Nile's head for three, four months until, I can, until I've can until i nailed it. Not just from a technical level, mm-hmm. but from, a, from, a, uh, from a, a, the object, objective approach level as well, the psychological level of how to approach that style. Uh, so that's helped me a lot, I think, in, in terms of um, being able to play various styles. I can even bluff my way through jazz if I have to. <laughs> pretty, pretty loosely, though. Sure. Uh, we've all we've all buffed our way through some jazz. I've got a genre I call wedding jazz. It means yeah. I it means I can play um, moon dance in any key you want. Yeah. Um, but I need a chart for all the things you are. Yeah, and uh, even if I had a chart thrown in front of me with all the diminished and elevens and thirteens and all that stuff, see, I don't know anything about that stuff. Sure. So I have to I have to play by ear, which is fortunate because I can play by ear. That's how I pretty much learned to play with sitting in front of the television and playing with anything that came along or the radio and not restricting myself to, I'm not going to play that. That's, you know, that's in three, four. It sounds, you know, wussy on everything. Mm -hmm. And that's what I teach students today is to not to restrict yourself. Cool. Anything but. When, um, when you've got a gig or tour coming up, do you, Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about your, your gear review channel in a little bit, but you seem like you've got a bit of a collection of stuff. Yeah. Do you have a go-to rig or do you tailor it depending on the artist in terms of gear, guitars, amps, pedals? Well, nowadays I use fractal audio stuff on stage pretty much exclusively. Okay, yeah. Uh, I even have an affiliation with fractal audio. I'm, I'm a beta tester for them now. Um, I do demo, the video demos for them. Mm-hmm. But the reason I got in bed with them in the first place was because I've always favoured cutting-edge technology, always, in, you know, not just musical but um, computer-wise as well. Okay. 
always had an interest in it and always tried to exploit the most that I possibly can out of whatever the medium is. Um, so the XFX was really, for me, an extension of things like Digitex 2101 that appeared in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. That was had the tube built in. It was That's right. A couple of units high. Yeah. Yeah, yep, cool. All that stuff I've, I've mucked around with um, and used with abandonment on stage at one point or another. So the XFX for me was the, um, the pinnacle of that sort of technology. So I just bought one. Yeah, awesome. And I haven't looked back since. And that was uh, three or four years ago, I think. Awesome. Now I, don't know, I have all of their products and it's pretty much all I use on stage. The front of house guys, be it at a pub or an arena with 25,000 people in it, will not let me use an amp or anything else because it just sounds so great. Yeah. And they're getting gorgeous stereo feeds with no spill. Um, I can dial up any amp or cabinet I want from you know a couple of hundred different sorts as well as the effects. Yeah. The controller board sits in front of me. It's connected by one XLR cable, so there's not a I don't even need to feed a power. It's just ace. And I've got two wedges in front of me, blasting 500 watts each in stereo at my face. You know that's you know people say they miss their cabs. You should try that. <laughs> that's cool. So, I was going to ask about cabs. Like so. With the James Rain tour, is that like, are you using any foldback for that or you just got the blasting wedges? Wedges in front of me. Okay. Uh, if, they're, if they're huge stages like, um, I don't know, one of the big outdoor shows or one of the big arenas like Rod Laver down here in Melbourne, I'll have satellite wedges planted on the sides of the stage as well because I use a wireless so I can run around and make it look a bit animated. Yeah. And the problem with um, wedges is as soon as you step, you know, four or five feet away from them on either side, they're fairly directional and you lose it. So I've got sure. to have satellites planted around, which is great. I love that. And the other guys don't mind it either. So that's, it works out fine. Innies I've never toyed with and won't until they work out some sort of spatial dimension algorithm that allows you to kind of feel where you are because at the moment it's too two-dimensional, yes. one-dimensional almost. You know, you can't get away from it. You can't get a feeling of space Yes. Um, to a great degree. So yeah. uh, no, I haven't gone down the innie path yet. Okay, okay, cool. With um, with the Axe, I've talked to a few guys who are using it. Peter Northcott up here in Sydney, Michael Dolce yep. up here. Yep. Um, we all collaborate. Yeah, cool. That's awesome. The um, you would know probably more than than most. Like the history of modelling, the early modellers, even if they sounded kind of good, mm. I, I used to have one of those uh, kidney bean pods, and some of the sounds were usable, but it never felt really great. Do you reckon Axe FX has covered that bridge? Oh, definitely. I do, yes. Yeah, uh, cool. The Johnson J station was a great one from that period. Okay. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. The desktop sort of thing, hey, and yeah, not doing amps right. and things. Yeah, it appeared at about the same time or not long after, maybe a month after the um, the first Line 6 pod yeah. came out. So there was obvious comparisons. I preferred the J station. Uh, just the sounds were a bit more organic and mm -hmm. uh, better. And... Uh, even it, it still stands pretty. It still stands up today, I reckon. Uh, but to answer your question, the XFX, which is the really the only recent one that I'm familiar with, Line Six haven't availed me a Helix yet, and Kemper will probably never let me try one of their gigs because they know that I'm associated with Fractal Audio. So sure. that's that's okay and that's understandable. Uh, although disappointed because I would like to try them at some point, mm -hmm. but a lot of people want an XFX to do exactly what. 
an amp does. You know, I want it to sound like a 1959 Super Lead Plexi, and I want to feel that sound level pressure from, you know, a, a, an early uh, basket weave TV quad box. I don't do that. I use, I, 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 if I wanted that, I'd get one on stage. So I actually use it for what it is capable of, and um, and cut all of those kind of fence barriers, and not not to be too particular about making it emulate something else, although they're great starting blocks. Sure. Uh, but you know, I might like uh, something like a Carolan triptych amp through a one by twelve cabinet, or modelled, of course, uh, just on a on a in front of twenty thousand people, just because the sound is focused more. So. Yeah, I've never been fussed about the absolute accuracy of the modelling, uh, but it is a good starting block. Yeah, sure. I'm one of the outside square thinkers, I think. Um, yeah. others want that. Well, it doesn't sound like the 65 twin to me. We'll get a 65 twin, man. You know? <laughs> so that, that's, that's my only answer. Yeah, cool. And even uh, Cliff the guy and the guys who program at that Fractal Audio will say, you know, these are... If you want the real thing, use the real thing because this is so much more. And they're quite right, it is. It is so much more. Yeah, the, cool. The, the potential is vast. For enjoyment, relaxation, I'll go and turn the thing on and just pick an amp that I've never tried before. So some crazy um, exotic thing that Cliff has modelled and, uh, you know, maybe one of his own dumbbells. He owns a couple apparently. And just muck around with it for a while and see what I can do with it. So it's the gift that keeps on giving for me. Cool. One um one video I loved um on your your site you had I can't remember what the patch I can't remember anything about it other than like you're working your your guitar volume like like you would with any other amp mm. and um and the touch and response to to my ear obviously playing it you're gonna feel it differently but to my ear it sounds like okay I can hear you digging in I can hear you backing off on the guitar yeah and that stuff modeling hasn't always done very well I guess no well Cliff takes great pains to make sure that, that kind of dynamic is included in the algorithm, which wouldn't be easy, I don't think. And you're quite right. Uh, I am a big fan of the pinky on the, excuse me, on the volume knob. I've never used the volume pedal ever. Uh, and it does exactly what I could do when I was running, when I was running Marshalls and or Fender Backline or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it's a mix. It's a, it's a great mixture of, um, of old and new. Cool. With all of the with all of those cool dynamics that you've just you know a great example that you've just pointed out. Sure, cool. What about guitars? What are you what are you playing? Is that per gig basis or? I have I have uh, it is. I try to I, I try to think like that, but inevitably I always come back to a bloody Stratocaster. Always. <laughs> so I've I've probably got forty or fifty guitars, and it, you know that range from crappy down electros through to eight string extended Ibanez Prestige <laughs> and ESP things. Uh, Telecasters are fabulous. I've got a couple of Gibsons, but always it must be just, I don't know why, habit or something, but I always, usually it ends up being the old uh, Fiesta Red 56 Strat mm -hmm. custom shop thing that I run around with. Great. Just probably the simplest instrument in the entire menagerie. Menagerie, what's the word? Uh, and uh, it just feels, it's just, comfortable and does everything I need it to do yeah, but cool. what I do do habitually and frustratingly I think for even for myself is continuously change pickups I'm working with three or four different pickup manufacturers at the moment including Chris Kinman who's given me about 30 different sets 
Uh, so I'm always swapping them in and out and, and checking that. That's kind of fun too. Cool. So what, what pickups have you got in there at the moment? At the moment, I've got a set of Four Seasons uh, bluesy sort of strat pickups. And Four Seasons are from... Gosh, I better get this right. The Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, and they're just El Nico f- four and five standard mm-hmm. moderate output strap pickups, but they sound gorgeous. But uh, normally it would be Mick Reilly's pickups. I've got a lot of guitars with his stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And next week it may be Mick Reilly's pickups again. Sure. <laughs> but at the moment, uh, they're these four seasons pickups, which are great. And I've, I've got a couple of custom strats built for me by uh, a fellow down here called Rob Butenhouse, another Dutchman. Yeah, uh, and it's a wood grain thing that you might have seen on a couple of the videos or even on stage, and it runs Chris Kinman's new pickups. Um, okay, they're the noiseless. Zero hum, we call them, uh, because the noiseless tag was appropriated or licensed at least by Fender, yeah. and uh, so Chris has he calls them zero hum, but. Yes, the description would be. There ain't no noise. Wow. Not even the Jazzmaster pickups, which are amazing. I've got a, I've, I've got a couple of, gosh, six Jazzmasters here. I reckon I've torn out all the pickups in in them and Chris Kinman's uh, pickups in that, which sound better and no noise. Which is unusual for a Jazzmaster because they're usually hummy bastards. Yeah, yeah, they have that funny. Um, I don't know how to describe the extra metal hanging out the sides that yeah well they're big flat single coil pickups for really yeah uh, there's this magnetic field just going everywhere and they uh unless you shield it incredibly well um or use something like chris's pickups you know you've got to live with that noise which can be uh an additive to your music as well just look at sonic youth or or um jay mascus or you know those sorts of people who will actually ride that noise but yeah yeah um so i've kept one i've kept one or two japanese jazz masters with the original american pickups i put in them um, and they've got the noise and they're nice but yeah chris's stuff's pretty good cool i think with the fender do you know the story i think he was working with fender at one stage or they were in discussion about using his designs yeah, I know that there was there was some sort of potential collaboration okay. uh, that in the end, for one reason or another, didn't happen. And I don't know what those reasons are, and I've never probed Chris about it. He doesn't live in Australia anymore, by the way. I think he's in um, uh, the Philippines now. And, uh, yeah, I've never... Um, I've only known him really professionally for maybe a year or so um although we've admired each other from afar which is flattering um for me at least uh, uh, i knew there was yeah there, there was some upset and I, I i don't want to even speculate on what that might yeah, have been sure. so i don't know the the details or the facts but um it never eventuated suffice to say and he's still out on his own and doing quite well yeah Cool. Hey, can we, Brett, can we talk about your YouTube channel? Now, yep. I've got some numbers. I don't know if they're correct. You've, you've been doing it for about eight years or so? Yep. Started it as, as a sort of a backroom uh, bit of fun in 2008. 
Mm-hmm. And by 2010, I'd been headhunted by a pro guitar shop, and it was a business concern. It became a business concern inside two years. So it was a it was a, ten, a, a tenacious, persistent effort to sort of make some sort of impact, be it good or bad. And in the end, it's worked out to be quite good. Yeah, I, when you say quite good, I've I've heard somewhere between 12 and 16 million views. Is that right? Well, it's actually more than that. It's about 22 million. Oh, you're joking. Yeah. That is crazy. That's, that's on my channel. And then there's, a, you know, on the Pro Guitar Shop channel, I, I don't even know. It would be probably the same again for my videos because I know that they're up to about 200 mil. Wow. So on any given day, like right now, there'll be people around the world, like there'll be thousands of people a day checking out your videos, checking out gear, gear stuff. 300,000 hits a month I get. Wow. That'll do it. Give or take five percent. I just watched. I watched the trends of, um, but yeah, but it wasn't always like that. Of course, when sure. I first, when I first hit five hundred views, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And then, it, you know, six months later, it would be. It was fifty thousand. I thought, wow, this is actually. I might start soliciting for pedals from manufacturers, but I didn't have to because they started coming to me. Mm-hmm. I've got a hundred pedals sitting outside there at the moment, and and maybe a dozen amps from various manufacturers, including Roland and Blackstar, you know, big ones. Yeah. And uh, any guitars coming in here? There are a few guitars coming in, but just piles and piles of stuff. Earthquake Devices sent me eight pedals yesterday, you know, and it takes a full day, unfortunately, to um, to make a video, set it up research the product, uh, film it, edit it, master it. I was going to say upload it, but that two-hour thing finished yesterday because now I've got the NBN. <laughs> Very good. And get it online. Thank so you, Malcolm. It's actually, but in terms of a working day, it's usually about six to eight hours for any given product. Okay. Wow, that's that's huge. And you do all that yourself in-house? Yeah. Well, I've got to because there's no one else around here to do it. The skill set, uh, and I say this in all humility, is very high. You've got to be uh, you've got to be right on top of Pro Tools. You've got to be right on top of Final Cut Pro. Know how to place microphones and cameras, and then have the um, you've got to be able to present it. You've got to be able to, to make those pedals sound great with a particular style approach, uh, and then you know be able to frame the picture. And um, you with me? So yeah, it's yeah. actually. You are a, in the, very much uh, a one-man show in for all of those skills that are required, and it's expensive because we're talking about you know Canon cameras with two thousand dollar lenses, uh, three Macs with the gruntiest CPUs in them I could afford to do the crunching, the rendering. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then there's the amount of money and time invested in uh, when it, the first channel when the channel first started because I wasn't being given pedals or anything Uh, and still nothing's for free because you work for it people don't understand it oh he gets all these pedals for free well I don't get them for free at all because every time it's every time something comes through the door it's work it's another day's work yeah Uh, so consequently I now charge for it accordingly which is why it's become a business and why I've got to sit here for the next six months and try and catch up with all the work (laughs) That's cool. Some people would, would find that a fun a fun problem. Hey, um, anyone anyone with a smartphone can start a gear review channel or, dare I say, it, a podcast. Many do. Yes. How come 
what do you think? I think maybe you've answered this, but why, why do you think yours has taken off? Um, well, I got in relatively early uh, when there weren't too many people doing it. The only ones that were established of any note that I knew about were Gear Man Dude, who I'm now friendly with. Okay. And is, he, is he the guy that sounds like um, Jack Black? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's actually a, um, a a really friendly guy whose name yeah. I won't disclose. Okay. Okay. Uh, works in a guitar store down in southern america mm-hmm. and um loves playing the rolling stones but does sound a lot like jack black <laughs> and has the same kind of wry humor so he's uh he's been pigeonholed and i think he plays on that as you know uh, yeah right. so, so there was him and there was andy and pro guitar shop had, had only just begun really and at that point in time as well uh so they were the benchmarks for me and um there weren't there weren't much other competition and I'd always try to approach it with a degree of humour and objectively in that I wanted to see on on my videos at least what I would want to see if I was another person watching them. Mm-hmm. So it's not about me, it's about the product. Uh, so shut up Brett and just get on with demonstrating the product but try to give you an as accurate representation as possible so the guy in the Arizona desert who can't get to a music shop because the nearest one is 250 miles away can actually have faith in the pedal that he orders online because Kingman has made it sound like this. So that's what I know I'm going to get. Yeah, sure. that's what uh, that's uh, that's what's driven the success of the channel is um, audio and uh, explanatory accuracy, I think, and and so that it, it can be relied on. Awesome. Yeah, it looks like fairly early on you must have made a conscious decision to... I mean, the quality was always good, but you, you started micing up your amps. The quality um, was not all... Stuff. The, quality was, the quality was... Originally, it was... Um, it was put the pedal here in front of the MacBook Pro, which is what I'm talking to you now, and just okay. using the mic and, and the camera on it, because I yeah, had nothing yeah. else. Sure. And then I, then I borrowed a little Sony video cam from somebody uh-huh. um, who never got it back for two years, and then I... Then I I got a decent microphone and uh, and I stopped using GarageBand and I stopped using iMovie and I started using Pro Tools and I started using Final Cut Pro and I got bloody serious about it and mm-hmm. bought a Mac Pro and then bought a, a Canon you know SLR camera that could shoot HD with a two thousand dollar lens and I had to invest time and effort into it and and uh, and be tenacious about making it better every single time and I still try to do that although I know I do some pretty loose stuff I've had a couple of whiskeys I'll just turn the camera on and go for it which is fun too and funnily enough you know they're pretty popular those videos but uh, I always try, I always try to keep improving in some way or other you know what the crazy thing is here's a mad story I am a bass player man but the most <laughs> the most popular videos on my channel by far are the bass Really? Really. Wow. Have a look at the stats. You can bring it up if you want. <laughs> We're talking, you know, 400,000 views for some of that Tech 21 bass stuff. It's just, it's nutty. So either there's no bass players out there doing great videos yeah. channels, or they've just started, I hope so. Or um, I can't explain it. Yeah. Just a little tidbit. <laughs> so there's an opportunity for someone out there. Oh, much. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not much good at it. <laughs> well, I didn't think so. So apart from a um, hundred odd pedals to review and and some uh, some more touring when 
when the weather warms up. Uh, have you got anything else sort of planned for the rest of this year or has that tied you down for now? I had a, uh, a contract with um, MGM slash Waterfront for three solo albums. Okay, great. Based on the ambient sort of stuff that I do when I'm mucking around out there, which people seem to love for some reason. I'm very grateful. That's all they want. So I'm going to try to at least, and I'm three years behind okay. with the first one. Yeah. Um, so, but I've got all the Pro Tools sessions from all of the videos that I've done, and we're talking 1,500 videos. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of material to sift through. Uh, and a friend and I are going to go through it and hopefully get at least the first one out this year. So when you say going through videos, you mean you're going to... Go through the Pro Tools sessions um, to look for... All the videos I do are 99% uh, improvised compositions. Okay, yeah. To suit whatever I'm demonstrating rather than... Occasionally, I will learn you know, a Zach Wilde solo or something like that. Pro Guitar Shop usually want me want you to play something uh, that the viewer can reference. Okay, sure. So I do that. But really, I'm too lazy. I couldn't. I, I just can't do it. And I'm good at improvising, so I just make stuff up. So in the course of making all of this stuff up, there's usually some sort of melody involved um, because that's the kind of musical background I came from and I find it easy to do so there's some pretty good stuff in, in there that is worthy of uh, some post-production and just you know throwing out as a two or three minute piece a bit like the Aphex twin would have done you know mm -hmm. um, with his electronic stuff that's what we're talking about yeah right cool so it's a niche it'll be a niche uh, audience at best listening audience it's not something I'd want to tour um, but the contract's there. They're waiting for the material, I think, still. And um, I'd like to do it just for fun. So cool. that's that's a side project. But the most important thing for me at the moment is to plough through all of this work that's been sitting there, some of it for longer than 18 months. Cool. Well, Brett, man, thank you so much. You've, you've given us a lot of time and you've obviously, as you said, you've got, you've got a billion pedals out the back you need to start plugging in eventually so thank you so much for joining us um it's been my great pleasure been awesome. thank you for having me cool and um what's the best way to, for people to keep um up to date with the stuff you're up to uh well my facebook page is is usually uh, my point of um communication first point of communication followed by youtube and uh you can subscribe to that channel quite easily it's just one click so if, if all they want to see or hear is uh, YouTube demo, demos, that's probably their best point of reference. If they want to see and hear or talk about other gear that may not be demoed but we, that, that I'm discussing with uh, my YouTube, my Facebook page rather, is um, a frequent point of communication for not just myself but all the people I know. Yeah. And... Uh, which is mainly industry people, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's that's, and I have a website which I've criminally disregarded for the last year or so, just because I haven't had the bloody time to maintain it. Um, but hello, Paul Hanna in Sydney, who put it up for me. 
very clever designer. And uh, I'd like to say that it would be a good point of, of um, a good one-stop shop, but at the moment I'm sorry that it's not. So YouTube or Facebook. Cool. All right. Awesome. Well, I'll keep an eye out. We'll keep an eye out for um, for some more gear reviews and those three solo ambient albums. Looking forward to that. Yeah, they're a bit of fun. And then I'll be back on the um, back on the stage with James and the rest of the crew in late October for. I think we're doing the Red Hot Summer tour, but don't make me stick to that. One of the one of the big outdoor runs, probably a couple of day on the greens. You know that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Cool. All right, mate, thanks, Brett. Um, We'll talk to you soon then. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me, and uh, see you later. Cheers. All right, well, that was my conversation with Brett Kinman. I really enjoyed talking to Brett. Really good guy, and he's, uh, he's had an amazing career, and it just keeps going from strength to strength. If you haven't checked out his YouTube channel, and really, there can't be many people left who haven't, but uh, if you haven't seen that, definitely check it out. It's, it's an excellent place for gear enthusiasts. All right, we're just about out of here. Just a couple of reminders. You can find us now on guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com. We're still on iTunes. We're still on Stitcher. You can come and see us on Facebook. You can see us on Instagram. You can email us at guitarspeakpodcast.com. All right, well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you listening in. I appreciate you sharing the episodes around. And uh, it's, it's great to hear people um, are enjoying the, the interviews and things we're doing here. So really, thank you very, very much. All right, you've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling. See you next time. <laughs>